Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Her love is quite possessive, so she's sort of wanting to become the other person or owning the man or becoming whole and finally complete. When does love lead to murder? The two aren't worlds apart, both linked to passion. And for some, love is only a step away from obsession. In the Netflix series You, Joe Goldberg's spree of murders all come back to love and his determined ambition to find it. That's an uneasy thought for most people, as we often see love as the one true good in this world. So thankfully, it's just a work of fiction. Or is it? What if I told you there once lived a woman by the name of Belle Gunness, whose love fueled killing spree puts the fictional Joe Goldberg to shame? Belle is the most infamous serial killer you've never heard of, and she's the subject of Victoria Shelland's new book, My Men. I am delighted to say that Victoria is my guest today. Chapter 1 No Escape. Regarded as America's first female serial killer, Belle Gunness killed a staggering number of men in her time. Starting life as Brynhild, she grew up in Norway, where she had a passionate affair with a man named Firstborn. When the affair ends brutally, she flees Norway to the United States in search of a new life in America. She adopts the name Bella, later Belle. But her yearning for an all-consuming love erupts into violence. In My Men, Victoria imagines her way into the tumultuous inner life of Belle, finding humanity in the darkest of stories. I am staggered that I had never heard about Belle Gunness before now, and I asked Victoria how she discovered her story. The boring answer is that I don't know or I don't remember, but I remember my reaction when I first read of her, and that was why haven't I heard of her before. This book was written and published in Norway in 2021 and I used five years on the book and probably used even more time trying to figure out how to write this book in a non-sensualistic way. So probably I heard of her 10 years ago, so when I was 28 or something. So I was quite grown when I read of her the first time. Right. And that is also a big um, part of the reception. If you have heard of her, then it's more, <laughs> then it's a different book than if you have not heard of her. Then you get a different reading experience. But I think I read about her in the papers. In, in Norway, we have something we call <laughs> a gurktid, which is roughly translated cucumber time, which is in the summer. There's not a lot, of, lot for the media to write about. So they sort of write about like these fluff pieces because there's sort of nothing happening Mm. because everyone is on vacation. And the media tends to write about Belganis like in this interval with every five years or something. So I think that was in the summer when the media was just writing about different local stuff. And then they wrote about Bell again. (laughs) And then that was that was my first like meeting with Bell. And then when you first read of her, you find her everywhere and you find a lot of information. Yes, absolutely. We'll talk about Belle, of course, because she's a fascinating character. But I wanted to share something with you, Victoria, which is this is a relatively short 
book. I read a lot of books and it didn't take me very long to read it. But I wanted to share something with you, which is that I was exhausted at the end of this book. So I can only imagine what writing this and writing her was like for you. And I'd love to really start this conversation because there is this hauntingly beautiful claustrophobia as a reader. There is no escape. There is not a moment's rest. She is on the page all the time. And it is both fabulous, but exhausting. And it's such a triumph of written work to achieve that. But can I ask you, were you shattered at the end of this when you'd finished it? Because that must have been exhausting to write because it's <laughs> exhausting to read. Yeah, I was quite exhausted. But the thing is, the whole body of text sort of just came rather quickly when I sat down writing it. And for me, it takes years actually to actually edit it, to make it become so tight, if you can call it that. And yeah, it is exhausting. But for me, it is important that it is exhausting. And it's sort of mirroring how it is to be Belle, but it's yes. also how I sort of want literature to be or my literature to be or my writing to be. Because I want the text to sort of run off with the reader and the reader has to, as if you are on a horse that is running, yeah. <laughs> running really fast that you have to like use all your, all your power to slow down the tempo in the book because the text will run off with you. So you will have to fight with the text to slow down. And that is sort of what I think is how it probably could have been to live with Belle <laughs> or to be her. And that claustrophobia, that's that's uh, good that you're saying that because that's a big part of the book for me, that she can't escape herself. She can't escape her own faith or destiny. And that is sort of a torture for her as well. That's for the men, of course. I want to do that the language itself could mirror that claustrophobia and that pain. It certainly does. And it's such an achievement. For listeners that don't know, let, let's set this up. I mean, this sounds a bit bizarre, but it's not really a spoiler. But I think we can't really start to talk about Belle without talking about how her story ends or how, how we think it ends. This is a woman born and raised as a young person in Norway who moves to the United States to live with her sister and ends up becoming, and again, it's not a spoiler, she becomes known as a notorious serial killer. And we never really know how many people she may have been responsible for killing. But we also don't know whether she dies in the fire at her ranch in Laporte, Indiana, which is frontier country, gold rush, United States. There is a headless body found in the burnt out ruins of the ranch and several other bodies. And also without being too gruesome, many, many body parts. And we think it's anywhere between, I think it's something like 14 and 40 people that yeah. she may have killed, but we could never definitively prove that she died in that fire. And when I read that, I was so fascinated by this woman. I mean, what what do you think happened to her? Have you let yourself wonder whether she did die in the fire or whether she lived out her days elsewhere? From my research, which is not in the book, there was quite a big fuss or around 
that fire and what they found in the fire. It could be good to mention that no one knew who Belle was before they actually <laughs> was starting digging in her at her farm because she was living quite isolated in the outside of Chicago. So no, no one knew what she was doing before the farm burned down and they started digging in the ruins. And that was when the shock came. <laughs> Who was Belle Gunness? And uh, one of the things they used a lot of time on was that they tried to find out if it was Belle in the ruins because the body, as you say, was missing a head and uh, they couldn't identify this woman. And a lot of people said that this body was too small. Belle was a quite big woman. So the trials after or the, the different like things they did was to try to find out if Belle had gold in her teeth. So they had to find her dentist and then they had to find out if they could look for like gold teeth in the ruins and if that could be a possible way to identify the body. And uh, they also did different examinations of if, if the fire could be so warm and hot that only the head would evaporate and not the body. <laughs> Was that even possible? And they did a lot of, a lot of different research on, on this, uh, but they, I don't think they managed to conclude with anything. This makes me believe that she actually <laughs> made it to the other side of the country and yes. that she faked her own death I, uh, because, I, they, I, because there was so much mysteria around who was actually in that, in the ruins yeah. and why was she at all missing ahead. And some rumors said that they saw Belle two weeks before the fire bringing a new housemaid to the farm, that it could be her. But there are not so many sources to actually research. So you have to take the, the sources with the, you have to read them carefully because some of them are really exaggerated and probably rumors. Chapter two, longing for love. This might sound weird, but I actually felt a huge amount of sympathy for Belle in this book. And that is a huge credit to Victoria's darkly poetic and beautifully restrained way of writing. At the heart of Belle is this conflict between wanting to love and to be loved, but also feeling that she needs to kill. In the hands of another writer, this could have felt sensationalist, but it isn't. It's so restrained. And Victoria has shown a completely different side of Belle. A monster, yes but also a little Norwegian girl who just wants to be loved. Yeah, for me, the, the novel is about, it's sort of a big, long scream for love. And that is why it feels like a battle or a fight, because it is a fight for Belle. And she is longing for love. But the thing is, all these Norwegian men, because they were situated in the States already, and that was quite uh, normal, that Norwegians wanted to date and marry Norwegians. And a lot of this was the second wave that emigrated to the States. So there was a lot of families over there already, but a lot of people, a lot of men traveled alone. And that, that could be one of the reasons why there was that we don't know how many bodies was at her farm because they traveled over and maybe they didn't have family in the States already and didn't have contact information to their families in Norway, maybe. But I think they were, they were longing for love as well. To me, it's like, that's why the novel itself is relatable 
because it is like that Tinder sort of. Yes. People are reaching out in a written way. They they send their ads like you write your your Tinder profile text and you're asking for someone <laughs> to date you and love mm. you and get to know you. So to me, it's it's just like different genres, sort of. Yes, but it's exactly. the same. It's the same longing for love. And she was, she was, she was driven to the extreme, of course, because <laughs> mostly most of us don't, don't kill up to forty men <laughs> because we're longing for love. But to me, it's the same urge in which is quite human, and that is what I sort of was interested in her as a character. How was she as a human? What did she experience to to push her off the edge to actually mm. end up in a place where the only possibility was to kill these men, which she herself had asked to come? So something must have happened to her. And that was sort of my my drive in this. And for me, that my interpretation is her longing for love. So to me, she's sort of like this child. She starts over. A new man, a new possibility. He could love me the way I need. He could save me from myself. He can make me whole. And her love is quite possessive. So she's sort of wanting to become the other person or become owning the man, the man or becoming whole and finally complete, sort of. But the thing is, she's never going to complete no. herself because the wound is too deep. She's very troubled. And having sympathy for a serial killer is, is, you know, is difficult intellectually and emotionally to to go through as a reader. But I mean, you certainly took me on that that journey. But it, it's almost as if this is almost a, a romance novel. It's like a very twisted romantic story. And you are absolutely right. To me, it strikes me, Victoria, that that she wants to have complete control over the other person. This desire to be loved is all consuming to the extent that if it starts to fade then that other person must be killed for her to then move on and it, i wonder whether it's almost as if by killing them she was sort of saying well that never happened that that was just a potential you know mistake and i will reset start again the, there is going to be love out there for me and these men keep turning up and yeah. <laughs> you, you feel for them and you think, well, I, I don't know how much to invest because there is a pattern here. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many pages you're going to be, be <laughs> to be with us for. There is one gentleman, Mads Sorensen. I'd love to talk about yeah. Mads very briefly. But there is a moment when she could have been caught, could have been investigated and could potentially have been stopped because... There is insurance claim after insurance claim after insurance claim. And she manages to rinse a huge amount of money out of the insurance company. And I wondered in your research, I know you do include there's one. I think there's one moment of conversation with with the police in the source material. How deep was the investigation into her at, at that point? Were they were they close, do you think, to finding out what she was doing? The thing is that um, Mats Sorensen's brother, Oscar, was quite skeptical. So he accused her of killing his brother. And that was when he, he went to the police and he, was, he started like this process of the police actually investigating this. But 
it was sort of like if he couldn't push the investigation further, then the police wouldn't do anything. So that just nothing, nothing happened. But the thing is, it's sort of a parallel uh, thing happening later on, which is not in the book, but the brother of Andrew, uh, which is I name in the book, his brother had the same. He also went to Bell because he found the letters they had been writing. He went to Belle and said, where is my brother? I know you have been riding with him. And she, she was like, I don't know where he is. He, he, he took his cattle. I don't know. He, he, he passed by, but I wasn't the, the woman for him. So you have to search further. He's not here. So it's, it's the same happened. Like the, the families are suspicious of something. They understand something ha- have happened, but it stops there. Mm. And you also have the family of Peder Gunnis, because he had two daughters from his first marriage and because his, his wife died. And the family of his dead wife, they came and said, your new wife, <laughs> she's, not, she's not a good woman. We will take our, our grandchild. Wow. She will, will not continue to live with you. So a lot of family members have like, had their accusations, but nothing has happened. Like the police have like digged further into it. Your writing is beautiful. As I mentioned, your prose is, is just a delight to read with particular regard to violence, because there is a huge amount of violence in Belle's life. She is a serial killer, but the way you write some of those moments is so restrained and so beautiful that it's actually shocking to read. There's a statement about, you know, one, and, and I, I will clumsily try and paraphrase it, but one final twist of the knife just to make sure that all life has left the body. You know, in the hands of, of another writer, that could have been extremely sensationalist, extremely bloody and gory. But here it's not. It's incredibly restrained. And... I know you're not trying to put words into Belle's mouth, but it almost made me see how much she believed this was the right thing to do. And again, that that claustrophobia of being with her and in her head the whole time. I I think, Victoria, having read your book and, and done some research, not, not anywhere near the scale of yours, but I, I am convinced to within a certain degree of reality that she was 100% sure that what she was doing was the right thing. And it's, it's just exhausting. When you thought about this book, I know you said you spent a long time trying to find the way to write it. When it came to you, did it become really clear how you had to write her and what kind of voice she had to have? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yes. Um, because it is an impossible project this novel it is literally impossible i i i'm not able to know what she was feeling or what she, what she was thinking so the, the project itself is impossible so how do you how do you like solve that and as a writer i could do that but i i i would have to do it with extreme precision and one day something happened in my life i i became extreme I fell extremely in love with the, my partner which I'm together with today and that was sort of like something clicked in me when that happened to me because I sort of felt like I was going 
mad. And what I felt at that time was that he, I, I didn't have any sort of, I couldn't, I couldn't see because he was all over in my face all the time. And uh, that was, I, I was trying to like, where, where is my normal life? And he was just like everywhere. And I, I couldn't like get back to my normal life because I was so infatuated with, with this guy and his body and everything. And that is also the same you will see in the novel is that there is not a lot of horizon. You can't see very far because there is, you always see like body parts or another man's body or Belle's body or some juices are flowing or something. Yeah, it's skin and bones and everything is all up in, up in her face all the time. And when that happened to me, when I fell, fell in love, that was sort of like, this is, this is a good force, but it's could also be a really destructive force yes. if it's dealed with the wrong way. I, I, I <laughs> to use an example, it's sort of like you know when when people are watching soccer or football and their 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 team is winning and they get so excited, but you the the excitement is so angry. So you know that this force, <laughs> if it get loose, something will get damaged or hurt or something. Yeah, it's sort of the same. Like it's an uncontrollable force, which is. When you put it in its right form, it's beautiful and lovely. But when it gets out of control, then a lot of things <laughs> could happen. And that's when I found the rhythm of Bell. That's when I found the language of Bell and the where the narrator, the narrator's position. So to me, the narrator is on her shoulder, mm-hmm. uh, like a film camera, looking inside her head and then looking out inside her head and then looking out. You see what is in her head and up close. That is what you see. And you're, as a reader, you're always connected to her body. And that's where the violence comes in. You're always connected to the violence. And that's where the love comes in. You're always connected to her idea or sense that love and violence is sort of the same thing. It's just different extremes. So it's, it's this sort of twisted logic in her, in her mind. Because if the man love her and see through her, and could save her from herself, then they have to be quite strong and they have to be able to like stop her. But then if they love her in that way, then they will always also be able to kill her. So that is sort of, so if they love her in the way she needs to, then they will also be extremely dangerous for Mm -hmm. her. So that is the sort of the logic of the book. If you meet Belle and you don't love her in the right way, you have to die because then you're a stupid man with money. And, and if, if they love her in the right way, then you also have to die because they're too powerful. Chapter three, growing suspicious. When Belle first arrives in the United States, she stays with her older sister, Nellie. But that relationship changes dramatically and quickly turns sour. Perhaps it's because Nellie knew what Belle was capable of. Had she grown suspicious of her sister? Or perhaps Belle had outlived the needs of that particular relationship and simply moved on. Whatever the case, Nellie is hardly mentioned again in the book. So I wondered what happened to her and to their relationship. Her relationship with her sister and her children, I think that is the most interesting <laughs> relationships. A scene in the book is that Nellie has a lot of kids and uh, Bella is babysitting the youngest one, Olga. And one day Bella is 
asking uh, Nelly, could I have the care of Olga? And then Nelly says, no, you can't have my child. And then Belle cuts all contact and never talk to her sister again. It's, and and it's to me extreme. that actually yeah and that actually happened and to me that is sort of like a key scene in the book yeah. because it became so clear to me that Belle is not able to distinguish the border or the where her body stops and where her sister's body begins so boundaries she has really trouble with boundaries and she has that with her man with her kids with the firstborn which she falls in love with what is her and what is another person? So she can't grasp what is the outer world and what is the inner world. So to her, Nelly's body, Nelly's actual body, is the same as her body. Mm-hmm. That being said, so Olga is is her daughter as much as she is Nelly's daughter. So to Belle, it makes sense that she could have Olga because they are the same body. They are the same mother. And that's where sort of her psyche is twisting and sort of gradually going off and spinning off in that direction that she her boundaries are sort of slipping what it what is reality and what is her thoughts and what is actual other people this is sort of how the novel is trying to describe her her development uh, her psychological development throughout her life and throughout her book that as more isolated as she gets because she when she cut the contact with Nelly she has no family left so she is quite isolated. So her logic and her inner mind get to like spin off. And then when nobody, when she's in, not in contact with anybody she trusts, she sort of then everything is possible mm. because she sort of gradually becomes God in her own universe. You mentioned firstborn and there is quite a violent encounter that occurs relatively early on in the book, which I initially assumed would be some form of catalyst for what she would go on to do. And in a way it is, but actually it's more of a, of a stepping stone. And I think that the problems that she has clearly predate the character of firstborn and that particular encounter, because you mentioned her psyche psychologically, she's deeply, deeply troubled, but of course doesn't realize that because to her, everything makes perfect sense. And it's almost as if, each time something happens, she doubles down, she reaffirms what she thinks she believes, and she's absolutely certain that she's right. I mean, it's like a it's it's like a 200 page car crash in in slow motion, watching her unravel. And, and I keep coming back to the claustrophobia and, and it being exhausting because you're trying to understand. And then she changes very subtly, but she 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 changes. But deeply troubled psychological trauma that has its roots in something we don't know. But I thought it was going to be that that violent encounter with with firstborn that would set her off. And I realized after you know not very much time that that's not that's not the case. And that's what makes her fascinating, isn't it? Is this a hundred percent certainty that she's doing the right thing? I think it's interesting that you said that that was not the reason why she, why her life became <laughs> the way it did. Uh, because to me, something is happening within Belle, as you said, before she met Firstborn. One, one reason could be that she grew up in extreme poverty and that does something to you. And this is like a classical story, at least it was in Norway, that 
the owners of the farms were sleeping with the maids and then they were pregnant. That is like a classical story in Norwegian history. It happened all the time. What I wanted to portray in her early years is her infatuation with this man who is not nice to her. And she sort of falls more and more and deeply in love with this man who is obviously <laughs> not treating her well. And then you have like the different, of course, you have the class hierarchy, uh, but you also, yeah, the, the difference of power in that relationship. It's, to me, it sometimes felt that she was, that was the reason she fell in love with him in the first place, because he was higher up in the hierarchy. So she would accept anything from him because he was higher up in the hierarchy and had money. So what he does to her, I don't think that is the only explanation why she became <laughs> a serial killer, but it didn't do her situation any better. <laughs> it's interesting what you say, yeah. though, because there are parallels with the fact that she thinks that her body and Nell's body are the same thing and therefore she can have Olga as her yeah. own. If that is part of you know Norwegian history, then that would have meant that people like Firstborn were convinced that they had a right to her body yeah. to use as they wish. And, you know, just references to, you know, almost treating her like a piece of meat. And meat is such yeah. a huge part, of, you know, of this book. And, and maybe that kind of social conditioning, you know, is part of, of her upbringing that you grow up thinking that it is okay for someone to treat you like that because that's how things are done, right? Yeah, and you are someone else's property, sort of. Yeah, that's a good parallel. And also the the element of power, I think, that she was exposed to, that in her later life in the States, she was able to take back power. But that was not her only drive or force yeah, that's that's sort of what I'm trying to write. This it was also a, a longing for power, but like the longing for love was stronger, as I see her, because yeah, she did it so many times in the same way. Yes, <laughs> and we wrote, she wrote so many many letters, and how can you do that without? Yeah, I I I just think there had to be something human in her that was trying to connect with the world and connect to these men and connect with love and yeah i think it's a i think it's a combination isn't it it's she's clearly very convincing she can clearly write very articulately and very very comfortingly in order to persuade people but of course many of the men that she was corresponding with as you've already said would have had this desire for love and this desire to be loved and to be with someone and so I I am very convinced that I would have responded to this letter. You know, I, I I really do believe that. But it's astonishing to me to think how many times she did it and how we know so little about her. I mean, as I said, literally the most infamous serial killer you've never heard of. It's, mm. you know, it, it's extraordinary. One final question, if I may, Victoria, having spent, all of this time with her and talking to many people, not just me, about it, because this book came out several years ago in Norway and it's being printed in several languages ever since. So you've been having this conversation for a long time. But where do you stand now on her? How do you 
see her when you reflect on her what what what's the sort of conclusion that you've drawn i think it's it's wrong to say that i feel sorry for her but i i'm 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 but i sort of do <laughs> because i think she could have had another life and that is sort of what the book is trying to do it's trying to make an alternative reality or sort of write another story that we haven't heard of because of course she was an insane woman <laughs> killing all these men taking their money but there has to be something else which i think it is interesting and which i have which i am compassionate about to me she's like this was this small young child trying to make it in this world and she became quite isolated and that's where it all tipped off and became worse and worse and worse so i think yeah i think she escaped and I sort of understand <laughs> why she did it. But I feel even more sorry for the children than the men in the book because that's sort of history repeating itself. She didn't have the comfort of parents and close family. And then she has children and she can't be, she can't love them the way they need and she can't take care of them. So she's repeating her own childhood. Yeah. It is an extraordinary achievement you have packed a huge amount into this book my men is out now victoria shelland it's been an absolute pleasure thank you thank you conclusion a massive thank you then to victoria shelland for today's episode and to recap what have we learned there is often a humanity to be found in even the most terrifying monsters finding it and bringing it to a reader without sensationalizing that person is a skill and it all comes down to exercising restraint in your writing love can be a force for good and for bad as writers we should absolutely celebrate love in our writing but we should also consider playing with the uncontrollable nature of love and the darkness that it can unleash and finally sometimes it's in the most innocuous of places that you'll find the subject of your next novel like a fluff piece in a norwegian newspaper so always keep your eyes peeled for the next opportunity Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. You can get in touch directly at info at behindthespine.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Check out the show notes for additional information and a full transcript of this episode. You can also sign up to the email newsletter for updates about our exclusive live and in-person residency at the Groucho Club in London, titled In the Side Stories. These events are not recorded and not repeated and are designed to put you, the audience, both behind the spine and in the room. If you'd like to go on the guest list, please drop us a line. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.